Well, it is December 31st, and you have likely read or heard thousands upon thousands of news headlines over the past year. Whether it's been while scrolling on your phone, listening to the radio, watching the television, or listening to a podcast, the stories seem to compound year after year. And occasionally, a story seems to pop out or seem unusual. For instance, if we could mentally transport ourselves from from this 30-something degree day in Canfield, Ohio, to a nice, warm beach in France, an article that I read a few weeks ago, ago while scrolling on my phone started out like this. During sunny, warm beach days, kids could be found on the shores of Brittany, France, dipping their feet in water building sandcastles and looking for seashells and finding bright orange Garfield heads buried in the sand among a graveyard of phone cords, receivers, and numerical buttons. You see, the beaches of Brittany, France didn't just provide the standard beach fare. Sure, you could find a sand dollar or, if you're lucky, a shark tooth. But for 30 years, the source of these Garfield phones was unknown. Now, what was the reality that was found here? These kids and adults expect to find seashells. You expect to find sand dollars. But they found these phones that were shaped like the cartoon Garfield, where if you picked up the phone, his eyes would open, and when you put the phone down, his eyes would close. What was the evidence of this reality? One year recently, they found over 200 of these phones in one year. Just imagine, you're at the beach. Your kids are like, hey, mom, I'm going to go build a sandcastle. Let me go. They start digging, and they find a Garfield head. We're talking Garfield when cartoons were a little more interesting than they are today. The orange cat who likes lasagna. And the evidence was pointing to these had to be coming from somewhere year after year till finally a solution was found when a farmer found a storage container with many of these in that was deep within a cave. Day after day, week after week, year after year, they slowly came out and a solution was finally found. Get rid of the storage container and no more Garfield on the beach. Now, it's one thing to consider the reality and the evidence and the solution of things that don't really seem to affect our life. Finding a Garfield phone on a beach halfway around the world. It's quite another thing when we think about the news of our own lives. And when we sit here on the last day of the year, thinking back to all the events of our lives of 2023, sometimes we wonder what reality are we actually living in? What is the evidence that's pointing, that's going along with this reality? And was there, or is there, even a solution to what we find ourselves in? And to answer these questions, we look in God's word. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 14. Today we'll be in Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. Many of your Bibles have a heading that says, The fool says, there is no God. And this is a psalm of David. 
Psalm chapter 14, starting in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There, they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. And this morning, we see three movements in this text, starting with verses one to three, where we see the reality of sin. We are reminded in these first three verses that theology drives practice, or what we believe about God affects the actions that we have in life. This matches what Jesus says later in the New Testament where he says it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And we are reminded in verses 1 to 3 of the reality of sin in the world. And we are reminded that we cannot expect people in the world who are not part of God's family or who are not Christians to act like they are. I mean, just imagine for me you're at your favorite fast food restaurant You wait in line, you order, you pay, and they give you a tray with your food. You take that tray to the counter where maybe you're getting some napkins or some condiments or whatever you need, and all of a sudden someone comes and knocks your tray over. The tray falls on the ground, the drink spills, the french fries are literally flying away. And what do you do in that moment? Let me tell you what I do in that moment. I turn ready to react in anger until you turn and realize that the person who hit your tray over is blind and you realize that they are living in the reality and that changes our perspective. Similarly, we can't expect those who are blind in their sin to act like Christians the world is going to act like sinners because that is what people are. I mean, look down with me in verse one. These are very specific words that are used to describe people's actions. We see in these first few verses, the word corrupt is used twice. We see the deeds are described as abominable. That's not the snowman. Those are the actions that people are having. And we see that there are none Who does good? In these first three verses, we see a proper order of the universe. In verse two, we see God 
looking down on humankind, the creator looking down on his creation, and it does not look very good. Not that people were ugly, but that people were sinful. God doesn't need instant replay. God doesn't need a security camera to record what's happening so he can go back later and see what the actions were. No, God sees clearly, and what he saw was sin. The reality of sin in verses 1 to 3 is described as both being corporate and individual. We see the word they, meaning plural. There were all of the people sinning. Everyone was sinning. But then we see the description, not even one. This was individual sin, corporate sin and individual sin. But before we, on this last day of 2023 just push off this idea of sin that, oh, the world is sinful, but we are okay in here, we would be wise to examine ourselves and to consider the sins that we have committed or are committing this year. I mean, here we are, December 31st, 2023. This is a year where we began meeting as a church on January 1st was a Sunday, And now we end the year meeting on December 31st. And what we read here in this text, it's not like a letter of recommendation. It's not like someone who does a job reference who makes us sound better than we actually are. No, God is looking down from heaven and what he sees does not look very good. These corrupt deeds that we read about in verses 1 to 3, These abominable deeds that we read about that seem so heavy can be easy for us as Christians to just push them aside. I mean, if you're anything like me, sometimes I can be like, you know what? Well, let's think about the worst sin that we can think about. Okay, well, maybe murder, right? Killing another human being, that's pretty bad. We get here, okay, Pastor Kyle, you're teaching us that like, at least I didn't murder anyone this year. At least I didn't commit one of the 21,156 murders that happened last year. I'm not too bad. Yet we know when we often talk about socially acceptable sins, we can think of sins such as gossip or lying or slander, taking the Lord's name in vain by what we say or by what we do. Children who might find yourself in this service this morning, I wonder if at some point this past year we broke the fifth commandment by not honoring our father and our mother. And it doesn't take long for us, no matter what age we are, whether we're a child, a student, or an adult, that we realize that we are living in a reality of sin. This psalm is pointing to the fact These three verses that start out Psalm 14 are pointing to the fact that before one becomes a Christian, we must first admit that we are sinners. Maybe you're here this morning, you said, I already am a Christian. Before a Christian, with God's help, can put to death sin in their life, we must first admit the reality of sin 
This reminds me of a conversation I had with a good friend several years ago. He's the father of three children, and he teaches his kids that they are sinners. Not in a domineering way, not in an evil way, but he teaches his kids that they are sinners separated from God. He was having a conversation with another dad explaining that he teaches his kids that they are sinners. That other dad said to him, why are you doing that? Focus on the love of God. Teach your kids that God is love, that God is kind. Focus on the good parts of the Bible. Yet he knew what you and I know that our kids must know that they are sinners in order that they can know that they need a savior. And the reality is for every single person in this room today, whether a child or an adult, we didn't need to learn how to sin. My own children, they don't need to learn how to sin. We are sinners due to the nature that we find ourselves in. And unfortunately, in Psalm 14, things do not get better quickly. We see in verses four to six, evidence that points to the sin described in verses one to three. And when we think of evidence, I think about a news story I saw this year on ESPN. A legendary football coach had died There was many conversations on ESPN about his coaching, about him as a person, but one seemed to stick out. He was coaching a big game. His team was staying at a hotel, and he told the players on his team, I don't want you to leave the hotel tonight. I want you to stay in your hotel room, likely so they could rest before the big game, which brings up another weird conversation how a man is going to act like a dad to these players who make millions of dollars, but that's a conversation for another time. So how was he going to tell if they would listen to him? How could he tell the reality that they do? Well, he needed evidence. This was a smart football coach. Instead of telling the hotel, hey, I'm going to look at the security cameras. Instead, he took a football and he took a marker and he gave it to the young man working in the hotel lobby. He said, hey, if you see any of my players go out tonight, ask them for an autograph. (laughs) Because he knew that if his players were gonna leave, likely they wouldn't mind signing an autograph. And then the next morning he could take the ball and not only would he know exactly who left, but he would have their own signature. (laughs) The evidence was pointing to the reality much more important than a leather football. This evidence in verses four to six of sin points to the reality of the sin in our world. We see in verses four to six, two indictments that God brings on people that are based on evidence. The first indictment we see in verses four to six is that sin leads to a mistreatment of God's people. Verse four, if you look at it with me, it says, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? This psalm began with people saying there is no God. 
So it makes sense, again, if theology drives practice, it makes sense that if they don't believe there is a God, then they would mistreat those who believe in him. They are described in verse 4 as evildoers. They eat up God's people like bread. It doesn't take much effort to eat bread. We don't need to practice eating bread, but bread sustains us. And these evil people, the evidence against them was they were eating up God's people. That is what was sustaining them. The Bible is a big and true story made up of many smaller stories where God defends his people. And you do not want to be found on the opposite of God's people, yet the evidence was pointing there. The second indictment we see in verses 4 to 6 is that sin leads to a mistreatment of the poor. If you look down with me in verse 6, it says, You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Now, it takes a sinful person to disrupt the plans of anyone, but it takes an especially sinful person to disrupt the plans of the most vulnerable, in this case, the poor. Verse 5 describes these sinners as acting in great terror. And similarly, how the Bible is a big and true story made up of smaller stories of God defending his people, the Bible is also made up of many small stories of God defending the vulnerable, in this case, the poor. And you do not want to be found opposite God caring for the poor. As it ends in verse 6, it wasn't only the poor people they were going against, but it was God because the Lord was their refuge. Evidence leads to indictment. And it wouldn't take long, King David wrote this psalm, Psalm 14, if we were alive back when he wrote this, it wouldn't take long then, and it doesn't take long for us today on December 31st, 2023, to look around at the world and to see the evidence of sin. It doesn't take a rocket science to look in the world and realize the world is broken Yet the world does not realize the indictment that is coming. How does the world try to fix the reality and the evidence of sin? Well, there's many ways the world tries to fix the reality and the evidence of sin. But here are just three. First, they try to cancel absolute truth. Maybe you've heard this phrase before, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe, he can believe what he wants to believe, and let's all just get along. We realize this doesn't work because someone has to be right and someone has to be wrong. Trying to cancel absolute truth is a way to throw away the rule book. Everyone just do whatever they want to do, but we know that doesn't work. That leads to chaos. Another way the world tries to fix the reality and the evidence of sin is the world tries to minimize God's family, to devalue the church. 
Maybe you've been driving around, maybe on 224, stuck in holiday traffic. Maybe you saw one of the coexist bumper stickers that are on the back of cars that we really know are nothing about coexisting, but more just about everyone living the truth that they find in their heart. We try to minimize God's family, and we must be careful even as Christians, that this idea of minimizing God's family doesn't creep into the church. If we're not careful, sometimes we can think, you know what, I can be a Christian and I don't really need to go to church. Or you know what, I can be a Christian and it's okay if I just go to church a little bit. But we read a psalm like this, talking about the reality of sin. And if you and I were actually honest with each other, we know that most sin in our life grows fastest when we find ourselves in isolation, separated from other people. And this is why we need the church so that we can live in healthy community. A third way the world tries to fix the reality and evidence of sin is the world tries to highlight certain ways of helping the poor. No one would argue that it's good to help the poor. We see here, don't disrupt the plans of the poor. Yet oftentimes, many people in our world can become cause-driven. Many people in my generation become cause-driven. Let's go help the poor. The world might be broken, but let's go help people. I mean, people start making t-shirts. You've seen the commercials on TV. Let's go help those who are poor. We realize, although some good might come from this, oftentimes what happens is we're putting short-term band-aids on long-term problems and people are still found in sin. No matter how hard people try, the solution to sin is not found in the world. We can plan, we can work, we can help other people But the solution to the reality and the evidence of sin is not found inside the world, which is why we are thankful in God's kindness to us that Psalm 14 does not end at verse 6. There is one more verse, verse 7. Verse 7, which explains to us the solution for sin. And the solution is not found on the inside, but is found on the outside. Look with me, Psalm 14, verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. This psalm, as brutally honest as it begins in verses 1 to 6, it ends in verse 7 with hope of an answer, a solution to the reality of sin that would come in the future. Verse seven begins, oh, that it would come out of Zion. Zion is a word for God's presence or for heaven. Oh, that a solution would come out of heaven. This goes against all the cultural narrative that is built so deeply within us. There are companies hundreds of them that use marketing that preys on our innate desire to fix ourselves. 
I mean, listen to a few of these slogans. You'll recognize them. Home Depot. You can do it. We can help. You can do it. You can do it. We'll help you do it. Nike. Just do it. Gatorade. Is it in you? So you can go do it. Is it in you? Or my favorite, super popular right now. I have no idea what this has to do with a Whopper. But Burger King. What is it? You rule. You. You rule. Yet although these slogans sell millions of dollars of products, they cannot fix a sinful soul that is separated from God. You can't fix your soul. I can't fix my soul. Behavior modification can't fix our souls. We can't say, I'm going to act differently so God loves me. That doesn't work. Self-help books that come out year after year after year, why do they come out every year? Because they don't work. (laughs) One pastor writes about self-help books. He says, self-help doesn't work because my self is the problem. And the solution to the reality and the evidence of sin requires us admitting that we cannot fix it on our own. This is why I love the quote from Tom Schreiner. Theologian Tom Schreiner says thus, I find my assurance not in myself, not in my feelings, not in my performance, not even finally in my faith, but in Christ himself, my Savior and my God. If you're anything like me, our feelings change daily. Our performance, our morals sometimes go up and down. Even our faith in Christ seems stronger one day and weak the next day. But we don't find our confidence in that. We find our confidence in Christ. And Psalm 14 is a seven-verse song that points us to the reality that sin's solution is a savior from heaven. The solution to people's biggest problem, which is sin, is not found in the world, but would come out of Zion. It would come out of heaven. And the ending of this psalm has two quick lessons for us, almost in passing, that are important for us to see as we start a new year. The second to last line of this psalm reminds us that we can be certain of our salvation Notice, it doesn't say if, but it says when. We can trust the promise maker because we know that he is a promise keeper. As we start a new year, our lives might seem dark. We might not even be able to see the next step in front of us, but we can trust that there is certainty when the Lord will bring us salvation. And lastly, we see the result of salvation. The very last line of this psalm, the result of salvation is joy. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. I don't know about you, but when I interact with people, it seems like our world has had all the joy sucked out of it. 
that when we live in a joyful way, it's almost like we're in a foreign country. And I want to encourage us today as we start a new year, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And as we live as Christians, may our joy be evident in the dark world that we find ourselves. So as we close out 2023 and we enter into 2024 tonight at midnight, some of us in this room will be awake and some of us will not. But we are reminded that in a world full of bad news, there's going to be a lot of bad news this year. It's an election year. There's going to be a lot of bad news. We are reminded today, December 31st, 2023, that the gospel is good news. That God really did see the reality of our sin and he saw the reality of your sin. And he really did send a savior to rescue us out of that reality. This does not mean that there are not consequences for our sin. It does not mean because of some of the sin that we have committed or some of the sin that has been committed toward us this year, we will have some scars that will last for the rest of our lives. But we can be sure that there is forgiveness from sin because of the finished work of Jesus. So as we count down tonight toward a new year, which will be signified by a new day, January 1st, 2024, starting at midnight tonight, Let's remember that because a savior was sent from Zion, from heaven to earth, we can trust that God's mercies really are new every single morning, including tonight at midnight. Let us pray. Father, you are a good and kind God. And we thank you for seeing the reality of our sin and for sending a savior to rescue us out of that reality. Father, I pray that we would be a church that celebrates the gospel, that remembers the gospel, and with your help, lives out the gospel this year. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.